Hey everyone, and welcome to the Anacrusic Podcast. You're probably thinking, holy moly, Anne, it's been a year since you posted a podcast episode, and there was only one <laughs> for a year. Well, it's been kind of a crazy year, and um, I'm going to go ahead and make this podcast a little different than I had originally intended. Um, I didn't get rid of the first episode because I think a lot of music teachers can find some value in it, and it's an important curricular concept to talk about solo singing in kindergarten. But if you're looking for hard and fast, tried and true lessons or um, teaching ideas specifically for the elementary music room, this podcast is not going to exactly be that. It's not going to exactly be, okay, here's my idea for how to teach Ta and Titi. If you're looking for things like that, you're better off checking out my blog at anacrusic.com or my Teachers Pay Teacher store. This podcast is going to be completely refocused toward music teacher life, music teacher teaching philosophy, all of those things that kind of form our identity as music teachers, which sounds super loaded, but I promise it's going to be fun and cash, just like I like to be. Um, but we're still going to address some of those things that maybe you don't get a chance to talk about on your campus because you're the only music teacher and you just need a buddy to put their arm around you and be like, hey, I got you. And so that's what this podcast is all about. So here is... The second episode, but really the first episode of a relaunch for a podcast that has the music teacher and their joyful heart in mind. Hey, party people. My name is Anne Molesky, and I'm the music teacher and curriculum designer behind Anacrusic.com. I'm all about making your teaching life less stressful so you can take a breath and love each and every moment you spend making music with kids. This podcast is all about discovering your most purposeful, joyful, and sequential music teacher heart through meaningful conversations and a little teacher talk. So grab a cup of coffee and kick up your feet because it's time for the Anacrusic Podcast. Okay, everyone. So this is it. This is the first episode of the relaunch of the Anacrusic podcast. It's technically episode number two, but I think as you'll hear as we go through things, it's really kind of a brand new start. And what I thought would be fun for this first episode, that's really the second episode, is to tell you my story. I think that when we share our stories with one another and we talk about the path that we took to where we are in life, it can be really inspiring and really enlightening about who somebody is when you know what their path looks like. So I thought I would share mine with you. Um, so yeah, let's just go ahead and do it. So I grew up in a super duper musical family. My dad was a high school band director everyone expected me to go off to college and major in music. And I, for whatever reason, really pushed back against that. And I went off to college and I was like a pre-health major. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to do something um, like pre-med or in the health industry or something like that. So I, I went off to school 
and I was absolutely miserable. I had rejected everything I had ever known in terms of my identity as a musician, and I pretty much quit cold turkey doing all the music things, and it just didn't work. It didn't jive, especially with all the other changes that were going on, and I remember there was one night I called home, and I was just in tears, and I was telling my mom and dad how miserable I was at school, and they said, well, what do you want to do? We support you. You're doing great, but we want to help, and I said, I just want to play my trumpet, and so the next weekend, they brought my trumpet to me. And I started practicing my booty off, and when January rolled around, I auditioned to transfer into the School of Music. And I was eventually accepted, and I transferred to the music school what would have been my true sophomore year. So I spent five years in undergrad because that first year I accomplished a lot of gen eds, Um, since I wasn't officially admitted into the music school yet. And then I spent four years as a trumpet performance major. When it came time to graduate, I did what lots of performance majors do, and I auditioned for master's programs. And my path, my destiny, whatever you want to call it, led me to Dallas, Texas, where I did a master's in trumpet performance. So while I was in school, I was randomly assigned to the music education department. And it really was sort of a divine intervention because it was there that I met one of my very, very great mentors even today. And I remember I would go to my work study And I would be filing like elementary chorus octavos, like unison two-part octavos and looking at all this music and, and talking to the people I was working with. And my eyes were just completely opened into this whole world of music ed. And now I know that sounds really silly because, hi, I grew up in a house with a band director and I was around music teaching and learning my whole life, but for me, with my dad and all of my friends, I thought that if you were a music teacher, you were pretty much a band or a choir director, and I realized that there was this whole wonderful world of elementary music that was super magical, and I know it sounds cheesy, but I was like, holy moly, this is so fun. Like, look at how all of these kids are learning through all of these different mediums. And so it was through these conversations and really just doing my job that I start to get even more curious. Another big part of what influenced me during this time was I had been introduced to a lady through my church who taught early childhood and preschool music classes. And I started working with her to do the same. So while I was going to school for trumpet performance, I was assigned to the music ed department for my work study. And then I was teaching music to preschoolers. And I absolutely loved it. I remember that I would go in early in the morning and I would sit in the practice room for hours and hours and I would just wait until I could go and make music with kids. I mean, I always looked forward to orchestra rehearsals and band rehearsals and my brass quintet rehearsals as well because I loved, loved, loved playing and I still do. But I was never a big fan of practicing. (laughs) This sounds so horrible, but it's really true. Like, I just, I didn't have... 
I just didn't have the heart to sit in a practice room for hours and hours. And I knew what I wanted to sound like. And I loved making music with my friends. But I just, I really was not drawn to that that type of perfectionism, right? Like I'm, I'm a little bit of an OCD perfectionist, but not that type of perfectionism. So I didn't like practicing. I took a couple of professional auditions and I just wasn't happy. I totally bombed because I didn't like practicing. So I was never well prepared. And then I was super nervous about it, which just made everything go into a hot mess right away. But anyway, so I, I was really looking forward to kind of those, I don't want to say ancillary, but like those extra things that I was doing outside of my trumpet degree. And as I finished up my second year and was getting close to graduation, I had a heart to heart with my trumpet teacher. And I said, I just, I just don't feel pulled to keep taking these professional auditions. And at that time, my husband was kind of developing his professional life there in Dallas. And I had um, a couple of study playing gigs and some students and that type of thing. But I said to my trumpet teacher, I said, you know, I just, I feel really drawn to teaching kids and teaching kids in more of a general music setting. And I felt really guilty about that because if you, like, if you're a music teacher and you're listening to this and you went to a school of music or something that was more like a conservatory, which my undergrad and my graduate program was very much geared that way. Like most of my colleagues in those programs were vying for professional playing jobs and that was kind of the big dream and I had this really weird guilt about realizing that wasn't really my dream anymore and as I was talking to my teacher he said to me he said that's wonderful that you found this thing that gives you so much drive you're good at and you have the opportunity to do And I said, well, what about everything that I've been doing to do this other thing? And he just kind of looked at me dumbfounded and was like, Anne, it all applies. And that just really, really kind of stuck with me. Not only about how it applies, but how it's influenced who I am as a teacher and has given me more appreciation for what I do in the classroom. So anyway, so... I got done with my second year of graduate school in performance, and I graduated. And then I took a year, and I was still teaching those preschool music classes, and I decided, okay, I want to formalize this. And so I went back for a master's degree in music education. So while I did my master's in music ed, I was so, so lucky to be at a campus where there were lots and lots of summer professional development opportunities for music teachers and elementary music teachers in particular. So I was 10 minutes away from a campus that offered ORF levels, including master classes, and Kodai levels, and Delcros, and first steps in music. And I am the type of person even now to not really sit still. And at that time when I was married, but before kids, when I had the summers, I just wanted to be a sponge. So I signed up for (laughs) Orphan Kodai for three summers in a row back to back. And then there was even one summer where I did some Delcro's work as well. And I know that sounds a little crazy. And most people would probably advise against it because... 
a philosophy or the philosophy that you hear a lot of the time is that if you're going to do those levels courses, it's really great for you to take the time to let it soak in. So that's why usually people don't do ORF number one and number two um, in the same summer because the idea is like, okay, I'm going to take level one and then I'm going to go back to my classroom and apply these concepts. And I can see the argument for people saying, oh, I'm going to do the same thing. Like I'm going to take ORF one summer, then I'm going to take it two the next summer, then three the next summer, then I'm going to start my Kodai levels. But even though I'm just kind of manic anyway, I really, really loved doing them back to back because, and I'm not going to go and say that I'm a big blunder of the two approaches, but I loved seeing, you know, of course, after my first levels, because like I was such a newbie when it came to those first levels, but, um, I loved seeing how they worked kind of side by side and how they can draw from one another and support each other. And as I was doing all of this professional development, I really, really started to get sparked even more. And so I was just falling in love with teaching. I was falling in love with thinking about how you could design a pedagogy or a lesson to to work with this kid or this situation, or maybe a different kid needs it this way, or maybe you can take this song and it grow into this big production, or it can lead in perfectly to this other activity that reinforces this concept, and my brain just like exploded. And that was one of the moments that I realized, okay, like thinking about music teaching and thinking about music pedagogy specifically in the early childhood and elementary years is totally for me. And I just I just couldn't get enough. So I finished my Orphan Kodai levels, and I did do a Del Crows workshop while I was doing my master's in music ed. And all while I was doing this, of course, I was teaching during the school years. So while I was having that aha moment or moments in my levels courses, I was also having some really great aha moments in the classroom. And I'll never forget the moment that I realized I really always wanted to be working with kids. It was the first day of school, and I had a first grade class that I had had the year before in kindergarten. And it was, I mean, like, I still talk to my colleagues that I worked with at that campus, and that kindergarten class was just, like, the most amazing kindergarten class on the planet. Like, I mean, there were still, like, those kids, right? Like, there's always those kids. But it was just such a fun group, and even with, quote-unquote, those kids, like, there was no big behavior issues. Like, everybody was just super sweet. They all worked together, and it was just delightful. Um, But I do remember there was this one little girl, and every time we would play a solo singing game, and it would be her turn, she just could not get up into her head voice. She could kind of match pitch and like that octave or two octaves lower voice, um, almost like a speaking voice, but she could never match me up in her head voice. And so I remember thinking, okay, okay, let me try all of the things in my bag of tricks, and she could just never get it. And I remember toward the end of kindergarten, I thought, okay, maybe this kiddo just needs more time. And when they came in on the first day of first grade, we went around the room and we sang hello to each other and we sang something about um, what happened during the summer just so I could get a chance to like catch up with them and they could sing back to me. And it worked well because they were used to me from the year before. But when I got to this one little girl, I'll never forget singing hello to her and having her sing back to me 
perfectly on pitch in the most beautiful light voice. And I mean, granted, like none of that probably had anything to do with me because she probably seriously just needed time. She had had the experience the year before where she had the models and she had her peers as models and all that good stuff, but this kiddo just needed time. I didn't do anything like remarkable for her, but it was just... I, I just remember when she did it and I just lit up. Like I almost started crying. It's so silly, but I was so excited and I just said, Oh my gosh, I am so proud of you. And all the other kids started clapping. <laughs> I don't know if they knew totally why they were clapping, but I, I asked her, I said, Do you hear that your voice matches mine? And she just looked at me and she was beaming and she nodded her head. And oh my gosh, it was just. I mean, it was moments like that that make me realize, holy moly, like, I just love working with kids. Like, how can you not love this job, right? Like, like, okay, having moments like that versus four hours in a practice room, like, oh, I mean, that's a, that's a hard pass for me. Anyway, so tangent. So that was kind of my aha moment in the classroom. So I finished my master's in music education and was lucky enough to complete my ORF levels and Kodai levels while I was doing that. And I was teaching in the classroom and absolutely loving it. So then um, a time in our life came where both my husband and I were sort of looking for a change. And it seemed to be an open window for me to apply to PhD programs. And I kind of had it in the back of my mind that I always wanted to do a doctorate in music ed. Um, and it just so happened that this seemed to be the window. And so I applied to a few different programs and was accepted and attended one that I absolutely loved. Um, my colleagues were amazing. My professors were amazing. I really loved the coursework. I loved thinking about research and how it could be practically applied to the classroom to make teaching and learning better for teachers and students. And I was also able to work with a children's chorus once a week, which was a main criterion for me looking at programs. I wanted to be somewhere where I could still be doing stuff with kids instead of being locked up in the library all the time, which is kind of just the nature of the beast when you think of a program like that. But I wanted to have some sort of teaching outlet where I was still with kids to kind of keep my focus in that direction. While I was doing PhD coursework, I also got the opportunity to go to Hungary and to go to Budapest and Ketchkumet with some of my teacher friends from the Dallas area. And that was a totally life-changing experience to see Kodai pedagogy firsthand in the schools and to be in in that culture and and just immersed in, in everything I had really studied and had felt really drawn to. So after a year of doing that graduate program, my husband received a really, really great opportunity um, professionally. And it was one of those times in, you know, anyone's life where you're kind of at a crossroads. And we sat down and we made the decision together that we would come out to where we live now, which is in Washington State. And it was kind of an abrupt and somewhat unexpected change, but I really believe that things work out the way that they're supposed to. I mean, if you've listened to this podcast up until now, you know that my path has certainly not been straight. So um, (laughs) it's certainly not been straight. So we just, we made that decision and I have been so blessed that I feel like a lot of those connections I made in that program are still good. I 
think that maybe someday in the future I'll have, or I hope I'll have the opportunity to do that kind of um, work again. And I love that I'm able to be with kids on a more consistent basis now. And I've been so blessed that I've had some clinician opportunities and I've done workshops for teachers and I've gotten to teach Kodai levels in the summer because really and truly those are the two things I want to be doing in my life. You know, aside from like family and my sweet baby girl and all that good stuff, right? But in terms of like my professional music life, the two things I want to be doing is making music with kids and working with teachers to help them joyfully make music with kids. So that's kind of where I am right now. And I thank you for listening to this if you've made it this far. Um, it's been kind of a winding path. But I I really think that all of the things that have happened in my life up to this point have really contributed to who I am as a teacher, to who I am as a teacher educator, and sort of helped form my brain in terms of how I think about pedagogy and how I think about what happens in a classroom with kids and why it needs to be joyful, why it needs to be purposeful, and why it needs to be sequential for everybody who's involved. And so um, thanks for listening. (laughs) That was kind of an abrupt end, but seriously, I, I think that there's not a whole lot left to say because that's where the story is right now, but there are definitely some blank pages to come. So thank you so much for listening to this episode, and I will catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Anna Krusik Podcast. For more details and information from this episode, check out the show notes on anacrusik.com. While you're there, sign up to be an Anacrusic Insider so you get all my inside tips, tricks, and resources made just for you. It only takes a second and you'll get instant access to my free resource library. Also, if you found this episode entertaining, exciting, or informative, don't forget to share with your music besties or leave a review on iTunes.